This interview was recorded on November 18, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Emily Bache. Based in Gothenburg in Sweden, Emily is a software developer and popular conference speaker with a particular interest in lifelong learning and in community. Having worked for both large and small companies, she is currently a technical agile coach at the consultancy ProAgile. You can follow her on Twitter at Emily Bache, that's B-A-C-H-E, and check out her website at codingislikecooking.info. Emily is the author of a few Lean Pub books, including the Coding Dojo Handbook and the very recently completed Technical Agile Coaching with the Salmon Method. In her latest book, Emily explains Salmon Technical Coaching a method for software development teams to raise the quality of their work through becoming more agile and learning test-driven development, among other things. In this interview, we're going to talk about Emily's background and career, professional interests, her books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience as an author. So thank you, Emily, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to be invited. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in software and software development. And I, I listened to actually a podcast that I think you appeared on not too long ago, and I know you have a really interesting story. So please take all the time you want. Oh, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so I, I grew up in the UK. Um, I, uh, studied science and engineering at university and there I met my husband Jeff, um, now husband, <laughs> and uh, he's also a software developer and he's been coding since he was like, you know, a teenager. And he, in, he knew from a very early age that he wanted to be a software developer. And I was, I went, sailed through university and didn't really know what I wanted to do. And he encouraged me to try software. So I, I um, embarked on a career as a developer and it's gone very well and we've helped each other in our careers and um, we moved to Sweden together in uh, 2000 um, and we found it's actually very easy to get a job in Sweden with the background in software development. It's a very international industry and uh, yeah, so we have been living in Sweden for 20 years now and we love, love it here so we never went back. Um, and as I understand it, so you, 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 I mean, you, you, you grew up in the UK, so you had to take A-levels um, in order to get into university and you did, you did very well on those. Yes. Yes, I did very well. Extraordinarily well. well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I did well on my A-levels. I, I, um, I won a scholarship for the sixth form to go to a, quite an expensive private school. Um, and uh, the teaching was brilliant and the, the class sizes were very small and, um, you know, I learned the A-level material very well. So I got the highest, highest grade of anyone who did my A-level physics um, and went on to Cambridge. Uh, so, so yeah, I did, I did well. Yeah, for those, for those listening who might not be familiar with it, there's a kind of standardized testing program. There's a couple of them in, in the UK. One of them is the A-levels and it's, a, it's kind of a big deal every year when they're announced um, and performance in them is, is, is you know, very important. People actually prepare for a long time for them, it's, it's a really big deal. Um, and so you studied the natural sciences for the first couple of years at Cambridge before you switched to engineering, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, so I thought I was gonna be a physicist like my dad. Um, but uh, after a, a while of studying this, I realized that, okay, I'm good at physics, but uh, I don't know. Um, I felt I would like to do something a bit more practical and the engineering course was very easy to transfer to. Um, and I'd done a lot of, maths in the physics course so it was actually quite a straightforward change to engineering and I did find myself fitting in there a bit better and there were some courses on software development and stuff so yeah. And I believe you've spoken about you had so you, you switched from one thing into another but also into something you know entirely new and you've, you've spoken in the past about how um, a lot of people get started in 
programming very young, you know, maybe on their parents' computer or something like that. And I mean, I can say from my experience on this podcast, you know, I would say like 90% of the develop people who got into software development that I interview, like started quite young, um, but not everybody, yeah. you don't have to. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, you talk, I would like to, can you talk a little bit about that, about how, like, even if you find yourself, you know, you're already sort of in university and you've maybe started studying, there's nothing preventing you from learning programming at that stage. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, yeah, my, was my husband, Jeff, of course, he's been programming since he was, he was a child, but I, I didn't. I, I learned to program well. I mean, I did some university courses that involved programming, but I wouldn't say I could actually program until I, I left. <laughs> and uh, then I really um, got into it. And Jeff helped me to, to learn some of the techniques. And my first job, actually my second job, <laughs> that I had a really good boss who was really uh, a good mentor to me. Um, so yeah, you programming is definitely something that you can learn. It's, it's not something you're born with. Um, you know, if you're intelligent and hardworking, you can, you can learn it. And did you feel, I'm curious, did you feel judged? You know, when you, when you started getting, when you're there with people, like kind of, the, I mean, it, it's funny when you get older, you kind of, it can be easy to lose perspective about those things when you're very young, but you know, and I'm by very young, I now mean like in your early twenties or something like that. But you know uh, you know, people who are like might be way ahead of you in some skill might treat you like there's some deficiency in you because you haven't acquired that skill yet. Um, I would, I don't know. I mean, this whole thing of being doubted uh, because you haven't got a long background in software or because you're a woman or because you're young um, I was, I've always been very ambitious. I've always read a lot and I've always um, found that if I put my mind to something, I can, I can do it. Um, so software was the same. I decided this was a great career to go into. I enjoyed it and I, I invested in it and I've done well, I guess. And uh, yeah, and you and you and your husband eventually moved to Sweden, I believe, in the kind of the, the halcyon days of the dot-com boom. Yes. Yes, it was... Uh, early 2000s um, and the industry was just going mad. Anyone who had any experience was, um, was being snapped up and Gothenburg, the, there is an IT industry here and um, there were lots of companies all trying to hire. Uh, so, so Jeff got a job at um, a very uh, interesting Swedish startup with a very international um, group of people. I think he was like employee 65 or something. And they, he worked there for 15 years and they later got bought by, by Boeing. And um, it was a very successful Swedish startup. Um, and I, I just kind of came along with him, thought, well, this will be fun. <laughs> we'll try out living in Sweden. Um, and then uh, I, got, I got there in, in, in March and I applied for a few jobs. And within two weeks, I had job offers. It was, it was really crazy. <laughs> I remember the first day of uh, the first week in my new job in, in Gothenburg, they, we had um, champagne at breakfast, breakfast for the whole company. It was a consultancy company um, because we made so much money the last month. Um, everything was going swimmingly and they were hiring like nobody's business. And then two years later, that company actually went bust um, and I was left unemployed. So that's, it was kind of a bit of a wild ride that, with a dot-com bubble and then it burst. Um, yeah, champagne for breakfast almost sounds like a metaphor for something. And eventually, um, you found yourself working, doing some really interesting work at uh, AstraZeneca, I believe. Yeah, I spent quite a chunk of my career at AstraZeneca. Um, they, uh, I mean, I, I thought it was, 
I was a bit put off by it being a big company and, you know, I was worried there was going to be bureaucracy and stuff, but I actually landed in a really interesting place in that company, uh, working very closely with some computational chemists. Um, and uh, they were doing um, uh, research into small molecules and, and uh, they were writing um, neural networks and machine learning things to try and make predictions about the properties of these small molecules. And this was like 2002, 2003. This was before machine learning and stuff was a thing, you know. So it was, there was no tools and, and they were kind of hacking stuff together that they couldn't maintain and they couldn't distribute. And, and I came in as a software developer to help them to get their amazing new cutting edge scientific models into the hands of all the scientists in, in AstraZeneca. So it was all about, you know, how can we make this scalable, maintainable? Can we test it to make sure that it's all right? And then when they update their models, it, it didn't, you know, in, break everything in the infrastructure. Yeah, that was a really, uh, that was a really good time, actually. And were you doing training at that time? Were you into training and agile and things like that? Um, so I wasn't doing training, no, but I was into agile. Um, Jeff uh, had, and I had both come across uh, extreme programming and we went to um, the extreme programming conference in Italy in 2002 and met Kent Beck and Martin Fowler and uh, Michael Feathers and all these agile luminaries and it made a profound impact on my view of software. Uh, that conference and reading up all of the books that these people were writing. So at AstraZeneca, I was busily trying to do all the stuff I could read about in these books and, and deliver uh, frequently new updates to the, the software I was building and writing extensive tests for everything. Um, and Jeff at his company was doing the same. He was writing tests for everything and um, they were being really agile too. So we were very much early adopters of this, um, you know, extreme programming way of working. And how did you find your way into, into, into sort of training and things like that and, and speaking at conferences? And I mean, it's, it's, you know, all very writing books and making plural site videos and things like that. Right. Well, I guess it, um, how did I get into speaking at conferences? Well, I realized that a good way to persuade my boss to let me go to the conference was if I was speaking at it. <laughs> um, so my, my boss would, would encourage me to do that. So I, um, so that was part of the motivation for speaking at it. It meant I could go. And I, I loved the, just the meeting all the new people and all the new ideas. And, and um, when you're a speaker, you also get treated differently. You get to uh, sit with the other speakers and there's, you get to know them. Um, it's much easier conversation starter. Oh yes, I'm speaking about this. What are you speaking about? You know, it's kind of, yeah. I really liked that feeling of, of being able to meet all these interesting people and, and find out what was going on. Um, and then it was 2005, I was at the X XP conference and I met um, Bob Martin and I met um, Laurent Bossavit and Emmanuel Gallo. And that's, uh, we attended the coding dojo, uh, the first public um, coding dojo outside Paris. And uh, that, that was really influential on me because I was like, wow, this is a way to actually get developers to, to be able to practice and learn test-driven development. Because, I mean, I'd been doing all this stuff, but I was having trouble persuading my colleagues, um, both within AstraZeneca and the company I worked before that. And you find that extreme programming is actually quite hard to do on your own. Uh, if, if you're working in a development team, you actually need the people around you to adopt the practices too. And I've been trying to persuade my colleagues and it was, 
you know, I was writing loads of tasks, but not necessarily those around me were. So um, I, found, I really liked the idea of the coding dojo and started to try and do some of that with the, the people around me. Um, also uh, at user groups in evenings. Um, so I, I joined the, the local Ruby user group. Although I was working all day in Python, somehow the, there wasn't the Python user group. There was a Ruby user group. So I went and I joined it and I um, started doing a few sessions with coding dojos and eventually I realized I should start a Python user group. Um, so we did that. And then, uh, yeah, so I got into this idea of coding dojos um, through, uh, through that and it, it seemed to work. And I, I really enjoyed leading those. Yeah, that's really great. Thanks for sharing that. I've, I've got actually some specific questions to ask you about coding dojos and what they are. And when we, we'll talk about your, your book a little bit, a little bit later. Um, but before that, um, one thing that's actually been introduced into this podcast starting, I guess, about eight months ago is a digression into discussing the pandemic. And I'll bring this back into discussion of conferences. Um, but, you know, one of the great pleasures, at least for me, of this, of this podcast is I get to interview people from all around the world, lots of different experiences. Um, and I don't think it's, it's at least been quite some time since I've interviewed someone based in Sweden. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it's been like for you and what it's been like in Gothenburg and particularly how um, the pandemic has in, impacted your working life and your career. Yeah. Um, so, okay. In, in March, uh, the, the pandemic struck and I was consulting with a large telecoms company and they, um, I was due to be giving a keynote at the ACU conference in, in uh, the UK in March. And I'd uh, said to my manager, you know, I'm, I'm taking a week off to go to England for this conference. And he was like, well, are you sure you want to go? Because um, we just got a new company policy. If you, if you, um, you might need to be quarantined for two weeks after you come back from the UK because it's a high risk country. And then uh, you won't be able to be consulting with us for two weeks. And, you know, we won't pay you and my boss, you know, it was obviously going to be an impact. So, so I canceled that. And then, and then, Everything just moved so quickly. Um, suddenly the conference was cancelled. The, the consultancy company sent everybody home. Uh, we had to all suddenly work from home. And uh, that was even before the government had put in any recommendations. Um, for, and then uh, the government then came up with, the, you know, you should work from home. This is recommended. And then the, the gatherings was cut to 50 sometime in mid-March. No, no public gatherings, more than 50 people. And then... The advice was work from home if you can, um, don't gather in, in groups, definitely a limit of 50. So we got all these restrictions that came in, but um, most of them were recommendations rather than new laws or anything, and they didn't close the schools. And so I've got two teenage children, and they have been going to school throughout, basically, uh, which meant that my husband and I have now been working from home um, and it's been really nice. I've really enjoyed actually working from home uh, with the kids out at school and, and we can sit and have lunch together and, and coffee. And um, I just had to overnight switch all the stuff I was doing, all the, all the coaching and, and training to online. And actually, it's fine. The technology is with us. It's, it's all there. It works. And the Swedish recommendations, I mean, it's got a bit of a reputation that Sweden didn't have lockdown. Um, and, uh, but actually in practice, people have behaved as if there's been a lockdown. There just haven't been any um, police going around enforcing it, as it were. 
I mean, I've, I've been looking at what's happening in the UK and what my family have gone through and, and they've actually, you know, had very strict rules about what they can and can't do. And, and we've had rules, but they're just maybe guide, guidelines and they haven't changed. It's been basically the same rules until, until everything got really much worse about uh, you know, two or three weeks ago. Um, so we've, we've basically had uh, the same rules the whole time until the, the second wave took off just recently. And now we actually, we're not supposed to gather more than eight people. Um, that's the latest result uh, advice. And it's also not not being like kind of enforced by law. It's just a kind of yeah strong yeah. recommendation. Yeah, that's it's interesting here and here where I am on Vancouver Island in the province of British Columbia in Canada. It's been very similar experience where people and companies started reacting when they started figuring out what was going on. That you know took some you know some people were and organizations reacted sooner than others. But um, the idea that a lot of behavior and policy changes that people saw were driven by like draconian enforced measures is just not true in many places, but it is, it is true in some places. And I know I've, I lived in the UK for nine years and I, you know, I've been watching what's been going on there with, it's been really sad, not just the pandemic, but you know, the, the rule imposition and things like that, being worried about fines and, yeah. and, and things like that. Um, you know, which, you know, it's, if you're plugged into the news, you know, you might know that kind of thing, but if you're, I'll, I'll just, you know, if you're a kind of ordinary person who, whose network of information comes from the people you know and chat with, you know, all of a sudden you can be out doing something normal and like people are yelling at you and that can be bad enough. But if the authorities are coming down all of a sudden, it can be really alienating. Yeah. Yeah. So I generally think that, that it's, um, the Swedish approach to, to the pandemic is, has been, it's been good as far as I can tell. Um, although the second wave, I mean, right now it's it's really bad. Um, so I, they just introduced this new measure of only gathering eight people, and I hope I hope it's going to start bringing the numbers down. Yeah, I should mention where I, I do. I actually started when I started asking people about the pandemic during the interviews. I started putting an ominous timestamp at the beginning of every episode. You know, this this episode was recorded on on date. You know, and so just for anyone who maybe missed that at the beginning, this is being recorded on November eighteenth, twenty twenty. Yeah, uh, when this second wave thing is is something that we're all experiencing and um, worrying about. And I, I, uh, just to bring it sort of back to you know away from the digression, um, you know, conference speaking can have a really big impact on someone's career in, in various disciplines, but, you know, in software engineering, it, you know, it can really make an impact. Um, and uh, how do you see things? I mean, you mentioned that sort of, you know, with your work, you've actually, the technologies here, you've managed to, 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 to make it happen and, and continue on. But with conferences, how do you see that changing going forward? Let's say, let's say for the next like year. Right. Well, I think, I mean, a lot of the conferences I've spoken at now have gone online. Um, so ACCU had to cancel because it was just too short notice to try and re-envisage it as an online conference. Um, but I spoke at another conference a couple of weeks ago that just took the same conference and did it online. And I've spoken at a few other like meetups and conferences through the year. Um, coming, the coming year, I think it's going to be similar. A lot of conferences are just going to try and do the same sequence of talks and workshops only online. And I think that's probably not the way that conferences are going to be going to survive. I, I don't know. It's I, I've noticed the audience numbers for for the ones that are just trying to reproduce an in-person conference online are just too small. Um, it seems that people go to a conference because 
to a large part because of the socialising and the and the evenings and the hallway track. Um, so the online version of the conference um, isn't as attractive. People don't sign up for it. They have to offer, offer something, a different experience. I think um, the online events that I've done that have been successful are the ones that have had um, small group interactions, um, much more clear kind of hallway track, ways to meet people and talk. Um, that's that kind of thing. It, you, you've got to try and give more than just listening to talks. Uh, there's a kind of corollary issue with consulting that I've spoken of about with a couple of people in this podcast where, you know, the in-person, you know, in the same way that a lot of people see the in-person experience of a conference having greater value than online for a number of reasons, the in-person consulting is something that people often ascribe greater value to than online consulting. Is, is that something that you think is going to affect your work? Well, uh, I'm really hopeful that I'm going to be able to keep doing what I'm doing remotely. Um, the kind of coaching and consulting I'm doing, I'm finding it's, I'm thinking it's working pretty well online. Um, and it means that the, the reach I have as a consultant is much greater. I, I, I don't need to travel to my clients to do what I'm doing. And uh, it means I, I've got access to more clients than I had before. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that I can, I can keep doing what I'm doing remotely um, by doing it well and uh, finding ways to get around the, the stuff that only works in person. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, um, I, I hope this is somewhat related to the kind of thing you might do, but we, um, we in the spring, we hired a bunch of co-op students from the lo local computer science department. Um, and for some of them, it was their first job. Uh, and so they've only known working remotely. Um, and one thing we found was that, you know, and I, I should, I should qualify this. I'm lean pubs resident non-coder. So I do do some coding and I look at code reviews and, and stuff like that, but I'm, I'm not a sort of uh, programmer myself, but, um, the ability for the numerous people on a call to suddenly screen share with everybody full screen, their code seems to be a really powerful way of collaborating on learning and making decisions. Yes. I mean, we found this, 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 um, ensemble programming technique uh, that I was using in for the in-person coaching before. Um, when you transfer it to online and you've, you've got a team, a team of software developers, and they've got one person sharing the, the code on their screen, and everyone is collaborating on what code to write next. And you, you put in a little bit of structure, you've got some tools um, to support this way of working. It, it works really well, actually. Um, and in some ways better than it did when I was in a, a big meeting room. <laughs> I mean, but I, when I was doing the ensemble programming, you've got your, your code up on a projector. And um, there are some, some little things that don't work so well. I have to try and remember everyone's name. Um, usually the room isn't set up for it very well, that the screen's at the end of a long table. So it, people are kind of twisting their neck to look at it. Um, and you're the, passing around a keyboard. And, and these days it's like, what, you're gonna pass around a keyboard? I get your germs, um, you know? So uh, when we're doing it online, everyone can see the screen. Um, I can see everyone's name. Uh, and we can um, have a shared timer that everyone can see. The, it, it actually works okay. The, the worst thing is the lack of the whiteboard to be able to have the whiteboard discussion. But you know, we, I'm discovering ways to, to simulate a, that whiteboard discussion with online tools as well. So um, I think it's, it's pretty good, actually. Yeah, that's really great. And it's, I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, people kind of in the kind of tech world might have known 
for a couple of years that the technology was was pretty much there, you know, that you could even, even things like taking over someone's computer, you know, you can do seamlessly now. And that's something that like enterprise products would claim you could do it, but it would turn out to be a nightmare. But now you can, you know, you can start a Zoom call. Everybody can see with dozen, a dozen people, or, well, I mean, many hundreds of people even, but, you know, with a, with a reasonably sized working group of people, you can all share screens, you can take over each other's computers and, and, and sort of like, which is a sort of non-germy way of handing over the keyboard. Yeah. Um, and it can be really powerful way, not just, not, not only for learning, but for collaborating on, on, on code and things like that. Um, uh, yeah. So thank you very much for sharing all that. I really, really appreciate that. Uh, it's great to hear about, well, I mean, not great, but it's, it's interesting to hear about what the experience has been like, been like for you in Sweden. Um, uh, moving on to the next part of the interview where we talk about your books. So your, your first book that was published on LeanPub was the Coding Dojo Handbook. And I, that was, I believe, about eight years ago. Yeah. I mean, I started working on that, I think it was 20, 2010. Um, and uh, yeah, so what happened actually was, because um, I've been doing this, these Coding Dojos since like 2005. So I had a several years experience and I, I heard about LeanPub. I mean, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm quite an early adopter. So um, I'd been on Twitter and I'd seen people tweeting about the fact they were using LeanPub and they were writing books. I don't remember exactly which books this was like. But then in 2010, I, I remember seeing a tweet from Laurent Bossovit saying, oh, I'm thinking about writing a book called The Coding Dojo. And he put a, a landing page up on LeanPub with a, a potential cover for it. And he said, look, if I wrote this book, would you read it? And that was his tweet, basically. So he hadn't written this book at that point. He'd just done exactly what you recommend, you know, trying to do the lean startup thing. Is there a market for this book before I write it? Um, and I saw this and I looked at it and I thought, that's a great idea. There should definitely be a book about The Coding Dojo but I want to write it. I don't want to want to write it. I can write a much better book than he was going to write. <laughs> so uh, I saw this and I thought, hmm. And I can't, I can't quite remember if I, I warned him in advance, but I put out my own landing page on LeanPub then um, saying, well, I would write this book and it would be called The Coding Dojo Handbook. And it would be a practical guide to how to set up your coding dojo. Um, so basically I was saying, I'm going to compete with you. <laughs> Um, but I think I, I, I got in contact with Laurent and said to him, look, I, I think I'd like to write this book. And he was like, oh, yeah, fine. No, go ahead. Um, so he was really nice about it, uh, which I was glad. And so I started writing. And at the time, I had, I had the time to write it. Um, I was uh, at a place in my career where I was kind of, I was just starting up my um, my own business as an independent consultant. And I didn't have much work at the start. So I had time to write and I found I really liked writing this and, and it turned into quite quickly into a book actually. And uh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's such a great story. We always like to hear that. I don't know if I've heard of people like competing in quite directly in that way, but I'm glad to hear it, to hear it ended up amicably and Laura ended, ended up writing his own pretty successful book on LeanPub as well on, on something else. And that's, you know, that actually is a, we'll talk a little bit about that maybe later, but that is kind of part of the idea is like, instead of going off into the cabin for three years and writing something and then realizing that was the, you didn't even want to write that book or other people didn't want you to write that book. You can kind of sort these things out by being more public at the beginning of the process. Um, but yeah, on the subject of the book, so for people uh, listening, um, uh, obviously dojo is kind of a metaphor, uh, but, but what is a coding dojo and how does it, how does it work? Right. So um, 
the the name comes from so a long time ago uh, Dave Thomas came up with the idea of a code carter uh, he was watching his child practice karate doing these co- karate kata exercises and he figured that that was a good way to get better at karate uh, to you know do these exercises and said we should do that in coding we should have code carters so he put up on his blog some of these exercises that people could try out and uh, then later um, these people in paris decided well actually the best way to learn something like karate is is not just to practice on exercises it's to actually join a dojo and meet other people and practice together so logically the best way to learn coding skills is to get together a group and practice code carter exercises in a dojo um, and they came up with some forms for that uh, for how to get a group of programmers to collaborate together and solve um, a programming problem in a collaborative way that meant they all learned about the solution to that problem and they could talk about it and they could encourage one another and they could improve their skills and so they that's basically the concept of a coding dojo that you you're trying to learn in a group um, and slight difference with a with a karate dojo you would have some kind of sensei or, or kind of master who would be like in charge or at least everyone would look up to them and try and emulate them um, in the coding dojo, as, as I see it, there's, there's, that tradition really hasn't taken root that you should have one person who is kind of like the, the head honcho or the sensei. It's been much more a group of peers learning from one another. So it, that's what my book is about, basically. If you're a, a, a developer, you can see that you'd like to improve. You'd, you'd like to learn skills like test-driven development. You're perhaps struggling a bit by yourself. Form a dojo, get some people together, get your peer, a peer group, support one another in your learning. And this is a form of, of uh, how to do that practice um, and uh, how to make it fun and how to actually help one another. Yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's such a great idea. Um, you know, having a place and a time where you go to um, learn and practice your coding skills uh, with a group of other people who are like-minded and there for the same purpose, but it's not at work and it's not like a hackathon where it's like really c- competitive or it's like it's where there's this kind of hybrid of, of group learning and individual advancement. But that mm-hmm. goes through, if I understand it correctly, there's repetition is an important part of it, that there's the idea that you can lose skills if you don't use them, like in music. Right. Yes. This, this idea of, of practice, um, when you're, if you repeat something, you naturally get better at it. Uh, it's kind of, um, and if you uh, repeat, um, but with a twist to make it a little bit harder, then you can uh, expand your skills into new areas. Um, but it's, it, that's kind of the difference between uh, with deliberate practice, where you're deliberately trying to stretch yourself a little bit, just enough that you're gaining skills and not getting discouraged. And having a, a group of people around you who are also trying to stretch their skills a little, and some of them maybe have got a bit further than you and, and some a bit less far, you know, you can, you can um, be encouraged to, to move further and, uh, and pull people along with you. I mean, if you're going to learn a skill, you have the the, the saying is um, "see it, do it, teach it." Um, so in the in the coding dojo, you have an opportunity to see someone else do it. You can have a opportunity to do it yourself, um, or in a pair. And then perhaps if you're in a pair, you can then teach the other person in the pair or someone else in the group what it is you just learned. And that's a great way to consolidate knowledge. Um, so the the dojo is a natural environment where you you learn stuff, and that's really the the point of it. 
Yeah. The ability to, I, I've done a little bit of martial arts training in my life and the, the opportunity to see someone who knows what they're doing, do it outside an environment like work where there's like all kinds of other kind of things going on, you know, is, is really, you know, the best, as you said, like, you know, the first thing is see it, you know, do it, then repeat it. Um, seeing it first is kind of like a crucial thing for certain kinds of skills and learning. And so your latest book, uh, Technical Agile Coaching with the Saman Method. So I always like to ask people before these interviews how to pronounce everything. I forgot to ask you how to pronounce pronounce this word, which is um, Swedish uh, for together, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Saman. It's um, okay. It's just said, like you said, it. it's it's not difficult. That's one of the reasons I chose it as, as a name because it it, it's fairly easy to pronounce in, in English and Swedish. Yeah. And, and what is the Saman technical coaching method? So it's a method that I've been using for a few years now to, in, in my coaching. And the basis of it is that you are, um, I'm a coach. I'm trying to encourage teams to improve the way they build software together. And uh, the basis of the method is that I, I, I coach a team all together. Um, so and the, the concretely, I will, with that team, we will do ensemble programming, uh, which is also known as mob programming. It's a whole team programming approach. So that's one part. And we'll do that in their production code. We're in a realistic situation for this team. And uh, so that they get the benefit of the experience of me as a coach in their ensemble, in their normal working environment. And the other part of the method is the learning hour where we practice on exercises. So that's like a, a small, short coding dojo, basically, uh, which are called learning hour to emphasize that it's an hour and you're supposed to be learning new skills in that time. So that's why I take them out of their normal environments and try and get them to, to see what's possible, to show them new things, um, to get them to practice and to ultimately to teach each other those skills. So it's um, the... The learning hour is, I'm very keen to use um, teaching from the back of the room methods. Um, so that's uh, active learning, making sure that they are fully um, engaged and active learners and not, it's not me preaching or uh, trying to stuff their brains with knowledge. It's, it's got to be interactive. And for someone who's, who's thinking of buying the book uh, with the, uh, intention of carry, carrying out these principles and practices and methods. What does, let's say you were hired to be a Saman technical coach at a company. What would your day look like as a coach? So the day um, I usually coach two teams each day um, at the moment. So before I was trying to do three, but it got a bit stressed. So two is good. So we'll do two hours ensemble programming with the first team um, in the morning and two hours with the other team in the afternoon. And then there's the learning hour. And I, I started out by trying to do the learning hour common for both teams so that they would, they would come together and have the same learning hour together. And that worked fine in some organizations, but the organization I'm currently working with, the teams are all really different. And I was finding it very hard to find a, a learning hour that would work for two teams together. So I'm doing them separately as well. So I've got to basically learning hour in the morning and a learning hour in the afternoon. And I'm curious, uh, I've talked to a lot of people on the podcast who are consultants and there's so many like kind of meta issues to consulting. Uh, one of which would be in this case, uh, convincing someone in charge that taking these people out of their 
straightforward work into a learning hour every day might be a difficult challenge. How do you go about, or I mean, is it, I, I don't know, by the time you're brought in, has someone else already done the convincing that this is right? Or do you have to participate in the convincing process or do people just get it? No, I definitely am involved in a convincing process. Okay. That's, uh, that's uh, been a big thing because, I mean, I'm selling something that nobody's ever really bought before um, or very few people have bought. So there's a lot, there's been a lot of sales and marketing. Uh, um, but one of the things that probably I should mention, it's well, on a coaching day, it is, you know, the, the team spends all morning with me all, all, all afternoon, but not every day is a coaching day. I try and uh, break it up a bit so that they get um, 10 coaching days over a three-week period. Um, I can do that when I'm remote so that it's not every day of the week. Um, and also I take a break. After 10 coaching days, they get a break from coaching um, and I'll coach a different team. So, uh, and then we'll come back and I'll coach them again a bit later on. So from the team's perspective, they have a three-week period where things are a bit intense and they've got some coaching happening, but they've got quite a lot of their, their time left to do their ordinary job and to continue to produce features and do what their company is paying them to do. And that makes the sell a little bit easier for the managers because it's, um, I can go to the manager and say, look, you're, you're, you need to reduce your feature capacity for a limited period while I'm coaching them. And uh, we're learning on the job. We're, we're looking at um, their real coding problems that they're having in, in these Saman um, ensemble sessions. And uh, quickly, the team hopefully will be able to apply the knowledge that they've gained. So I'm finding that's, that's quite good as a sales pitch to, to managers to realize that it's not like a training course where they lose everybody full time for, you know, three days or a week or something. It's much more spread out. That, that helps. And I think it helps with the learning for the team as well, because they get plenty of time between the coaching to reflect and to try and apply the stuff that we've been going through. Because uh, that's really what's going to make the difference. Um, it's not the, the things that I change when I'm there. It's the things that they change when I'm not there that is actually going to make a difference to the company. So there has to be time for them to consolidate and, and challenge what they're learning and then come back and ask me questions um, and say, well, this isn't working, you know, and then hopefully I can help them with that. Yeah. And I mean, the book, the book is obviously full of really, really helpful uh, advice and sort of very detailed descriptions of ways to do things and what they're for as well, which is one of the things I really like about it. Um, uh, just before we move on to the next part of the interview, I'm, I wanted to talk to you, but this is sort of a little bit of a callback to what we were talking about before, but I think you write in the book about a cyber dojo. Um, uh, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about like, let's say, I mean, let's say someone is out there and they're struggling with, I mean, like a lot of teachers are struggling with teaching. I know a couple, uh, you know, with zoom basically, um, which is a wonderful tool. We're using it right now. Um, but it can be really hard. Do you have any tips for anyone listening that you've, you've learned in the last few months for sort of handling multiple people in a learning environment that's entirely virtual? Well, yeah. Um, so, of course, CyberDojo has been around for a long time. It's an oh. online coding environment um, that a friend of mine, John Jagger, um, and some other people I know come up with. And it's great. I use that a lot. Um, another really useful thing I found, though, is just an ordinary um, Google Doc. Um, I mean, I, I found it's almost better than an online whiteboard. I've used Miro as well, and that's nice. But Google Doc, you know, everyone can just get in there and start editing and typing. 
um, and in real time you can see what everyone's doing. So I can set up a little exercise with, um, you know, um, a list of bullet points and I want that and I have a list of little icons that they can copy and paste next to the bullet points that, that interest them or answer the question that I've asked them. Um, and that they can all see everyone else is pasting little pretty things into these bullet points and that kind of thing. So I, I use Google Docs quite a bit, actually. Thanks very much for that. That's actually a funny coincidence. Um, uh, some friends of mine from Montreal and I and some people from all around the country have started doing and we used to do pub quizzes together in person. Uh, and during the pandemic, we started doing them online and we've had to do a lot of figuring out because there's a lot of real time collaborating going on. Um, if you try and replicate the pub quiz idea where there's an announcer who's announcing them and you have to write down the questions and then you have to try and come up with your answers. And Google Docs is the solution that we alighted upon in the end um, because you can share it easily with like, you just change it one setting and everybody can edit on it. People learn their kind of etiquette relatively quickly and it can be a great place for like spot and you can actually process a lot of information really quickly you can you can add and delete very easily you can make jokes um things like that uh and yeah it is a really wonderful tool for for real-time collaboration and of course but one of the best things about it is you've got this document afterwards that people who attended and even people who didn't attend can look at uh and having this kind of documented record of what went on uh yeah. is a really powerful thing Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. For a teacher, you want them to take something home um, and put it next to their desk and be able to refer to it. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's fantastic. Um, uh, so just, yeah, moving on to the last part of the interview where we talk a bit more in the weeds about your experience as, as a writer and a content producer. So uh, before we talk about writing, so you've actually, over the years, you've produced a couple of video courses for Pluralsight. Um, I've interviewed a few people who've done that before. Uh, what was your experience like with that? I've, I've basically only heard positive things. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, that was like 2011 or something. I did the first, my first course for them. And it, the first course I did was based on the Coding Dojo handbook. And the next course was uh, unit testing in Python. Um, and I, I found the, the experience of making the videos very lonely, actually. Um, sitting at home, uh, recording videos by myself and the feed, I got feedback from an editor as well, but generally the feedback was just, oh, you're doing great, carry on, <laughs> which is kind of nice. But um, so after I'd done those two video courses, I actually decided I didn't really enjoy it enough to want to carry on. So I went and did other stuff. Um, so I, then they came back to me um, recently, a couple of years ago and said, oh, we'd, we need you to update the course on unit testing because it's a bit out of date now. And so I did, I, I spent a few weeks doing it again. And again, I found the experience of recording these videos not very rewarding because compared to giving a conference speak, speech where you get, you know, people ask questions and, and stuff, um, and it's much more interactive. But, you know, it was okay. I, it wasn't bad. I, I'd do another one if, if, uh, if it came to it. But I did notice, though, that... Um, I get a, a, you know, a royalty payment from Plural Sites, and I've been getting these royalty payments since 2011. But suddenly, when COVID hits, the size of the royalty payments <laughs> increased quite a lot. Um, so it's actually earning me a lot more money than I'd really an anticipated. So uh, 
I do recommend video trainings if you're, if you're um, as, a, as a way to get a steady income. At least now everything's online. Yeah, I've, I've, heard, I've heard similar things from other people. There was someone I interviewed not too long ago named Nigel Poulton who, who does uh, videos a lot. And I mean, the one thing is, yeah, I mean, that you sort of talked about was, you know, that it's actually, it's actually really hard <laughs> in a number yeah. of different ways. Uh, you know, if you want to get into that, it's, 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 it can be very rewarding in the end, kind of lit- I mean, literally in the end, but, or monetarily, but um, recording videos is hard. It takes a lot of time. It's actually like, like other things, it's a skill that you, you kind of build up in the immediate term and you get sort of there's a steep drop off, (laughs) Uh, you know, and you sort of have to get those skills back if you haven't been doing it for a while, but it can be very rewarding and people love watching videos. And so if you're into looking into getting into the content creating world, books are great, way easier to update, (laughs) way easier to edit, but videos have a unique quality of their own that that's very productive and that a lot of people love. And so we talked actually a little bit earlier about, you know, how you found out about LeanPub and, and why you started using it. Um, I guess one question I would have for you is since you're someone who's sort of been around a lot longer than most authors that I interview, what would you say are some of the biggest changes you saw in LeanPub over the years like that like maybe were improvements or, or things like that? Well... Uh, and, and I'm looking for criticism in addition to not, not, not necessarily for I mean, praise. When I wrote- Right, my first book, it was it was Dropbox for th- syncing the files. And for the latest book, I've used GitHub. Um, but I'm still using Markdown. And um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have said that there was a huge difference for the experiences as a writer. Maybe I haven't discovered enough of the new features. I mean, I've, I've in the intervening period, I haven't been in on LeanPub particularly. Um, I've bought a few books off you uh, <laughs> and quite a few interesting titles there. But as an author, um, the, the experience of writing, I wouldn't have said was that different from 2010, 2011 to, to now. Um, yeah, thanks for that. I mean, that's actually, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that actually because part of, part of our whole idea is like write in plain, if you know how to write in plain text, like in Markdown, you should be able to write in plain text just like you would write any other Markdown document and just like click a button or if you're using our API, you know, fire off a command and, you know, get, get things done as easily as possible. And so the idea that it's been kind of actually a relatively consistent thing from that perspective over time is, is really nice to hear. Um, the last question uh, that I always like to ask uh, LeanPub authors on the podcast is if there was one thing we could build for you or one really annoying problem we could fix for you, can you think of anything you would ask us to do? Oh, well, the thing is, probably whatever I'm going to ask, you're going to come back and say, actually, we do have that. Um, so <laughs> I just, it, it's uh, the only annoying thing I've got at the moment is that um, I'm not, I'm just writing my text in Sublime and I haven't taken the trouble to install a spell checker. Um, so I keep publishing really annoying typos uh but i'm sure you've got a solution to this i've just not been clever uh, enough to- we don't um it's Ooh. it's funny uh i think so it's it's a really curious thing because you know LeanPub is a self-publishing platform that's intended to be used by all self-published authors but for a number of reasons it's been particularly popular with people who technically minded people and one of the interesting things about technically minded people is when they encounter a problem they stubbornly seek out their own solution. Um, so we've had people build entire workflows 
um, uh, you know, to, to achieve things without telling us about it. And then I'll find out about it in this, you know, like I leave these, this lean pub stuff till the end of the interview, but like, then I'll find out they built this crazy thing um, and super complicated. And it's always super interesting to hear, but for that reason, at least this is my opinion. Like it's only in the last year or so that people have started asking about spell checkers and stuff like that because they were finding that they were like, you know, I just copy and paste it into word or something like that. You know, like people, but I guess I, I'm just, there's something I think about our authors that they, anywhere else people would have complained a lot more about the fact that we don't have spell checking, you know? Uh, but, uh, and so in a way, like, I've been kind of glad to hear people start asking for it. And like, I'm not making any promises about timing or anything like that, but like, you know, the more we hear people requesting something, you know, the, the higher up it gets in our queue of things to discuss and think about, you know, finding a solution for. Um, and I think another one thing that actually changed on that front was, you know, people who use Gmail or anything where Grammarly type, I don't know if Gmail uses Grammarly, but they probably don't, but you know, people are just becoming more accustomed to having spell checking going on in real time in, in all of the tools that they use. So they're, you know, now like, Hey, why don't you guys have that? It's all about words, you know, <laughs> yeah correcting correcting my typos would be nice I, mean, I think my spelling's fairly good most of the time but everybody makes the odd typo so well yeah and i mean it's it's again like it's and just expressing my own like naivete that you know it wasn't a bigger concern from the beginning particularly for a self-publishing platform where people don't have the same kind of resources that you might have in a kind of conventional publishing workflow with you know working with a publishing company so anyway thank you very much for sharing that you're you're yet another person in the last year to start bringing that up. And so I'll make sure to communicate that to the team. Well, uh, Emily, thank you very much for taking the time to do this and yeah, for continuing to use Lean Pub to uh, publish your books. Yeah, well, thank you for, for putting together the Lean Pub oh, service, I guess. As an author, <laughs> it feels like a service. You publish my books. This is great. I'm, it's been a mutually beneficial relationship. Thank you. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.